P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. It's Thursday again, and welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. We have such an interesting show for you today. I have my guest, Tom Fisher. Hi, Tom. Hello, how are you? I'm great. So, Tom is joining us from uh, Wisconsin today, correct, Tom? Yes, yes, I am. The uh, and it, How about the snow there? You got snow? <laughs> Down here, uh, where I'm at, the snow has melted, uh, but it's 42 degrees and cloudy out today. Oh, nice. So, summer's almost, almost here. Wave. <laughs> Yeah, it's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So, um, so folks, for those of you that think DNA is conclusive, that when DNA is found on a on a case, on clothing, on a person, on anything around a crime scene, and you may think it is conclusive evidence that you have the the suspect. If it's suspect, suspect can be identified through the DNA. This case will show you maybe that's not the case. So, but before we get into that, I'll just tantalize you with that a little bit. Before we get into that, uh, Tom, tell us a little bit about your background. I know you were with the uh, police department, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I came on the police department uh, in 1979 as a police aide, which was like an apprenticeship program. And then when I was uh, promoted, uh, when I was 21, as a police officer, working in various assignments, uh, 1991, I went down to the detective bureau uh, on a, basically what was called a fugitive unit. Uh, we worked with the FBI, the marshals, the sheriff's department, uh, tracking individuals wanted for the most violent crimes in southeastern Wisconsin. And then from there, I was uh, promoted to detective, worked at the robbery squad, sexual assault, or I'm not sexual assault, uh, a sensitive crimes unit, uh, burglary car. I worked an armed robbery car, bank car and then uh, a forgery unit, and then uh, ended up as a homicide detective. What are sensitive crimes unit? That's uh, sexual assaults, stuff like okay. that, uh, missing juveniles and stuff. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. So you were, you were with, uh, see, that was uh, Milwaukee Police Department? Right, Milwaukee Police Department for 30 years. For 30 years. Wow. Almost yeah. a lifetime. It huh? was. <laughs> it, it was. <laughs> And then once I retired from there, I kind of fell into this uh, PI business. I wasn't planning on doing this, nor did I have an interest in it. But an attorney got a hold of me, asked me to take a look at a case. And from there, it just kept expanding and uh, finally got five individuals working with me. And uh, most of our work is uh, criminal defense work. Interesting. So just out of curiosity, Tom... When you were at the at Milwaukee Police Department, what did you folks think of private investigators? Well, I got to be honest, I didn't think much of them. It's like I, we always thought they were wannabe cops. And uh, when I got into the field and the individuals I met, and a lot of them are retired police officers or detectives, um, I found 
that interesting. One of the other things I found interesting was, you know, as a detective, we always have the responsibility to make sure that we have the right person charged with the crime. Correct. And the guys that I work with now or worked with in the past, you know, they kind of look down at you because you're doing private investigators work, especially for criminal defense attorneys. And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, how could you do that? And it's like, Everybody's entitled to a fair defense. I mean, my job is to make sure that you guys cross the I's, dot the T's, and take it from there. It's up to the jury to decide what, if anything, happens to this individual. You know, it's so interesting. That's such a common opinion across the country by folks that are in law enforcement. And at the same time, those that get out of law enforcement, either they retire or on disability, you know, leave on an injury or, or whatever, and get into the criminal defense world, find out exactly um, that it exactly where you are. It's it's so interesting to me because that happens over and over and over. Well, it is, and, and you know, I, I always uh, tell PIs, especially the ones working for me, join your local organization, you know, PI association, or join some of the national ones here because you're down working and learning from people uh, that have been doing this a lot longer than you. You know, I retire and it's like, I no longer can get, re- you know, information that I want or need uh, <laughs> like I used to. I have to work for it now. But that's, it, it's the hardest thing. And one of the other hardest things is, you know, a lot of these guys that I, I always want to come on and work for me, it's like, you know, you guys got to understand this. This is, you got a pension and some of them are just, I wouldn't hire them. And the people I have working are former law enforcement. Uh, they have specialties that I don't have, very dedicated, and they're very good at what they do. And they're motivated, and that's the big thing. Mm-hmm. For sure. Motivation is a, it's a huge thing. And, and sometimes you're, you're right. Sometimes that pension, um, it causes some obstacles. Well, it does. It does. It's like, I don't want to work today. Well, <laughs> it's not what I hired you for. <laughs> So, you know, and and that's the big thing. When you got guaranteed money coming in, you kind of, individuals can pick and choose what they want to do, when they want to do it. And, uh, no, we have to have uh, people here on a consistent basis willing to work and updating their education. So I I have another question for you, (laughs) as long as we're talking about this kind of thing. So uh, one of the things that's always really difficult for people coming out of law enforcement is the attorney-client privilege issue. If, uh, say, uh, a defendant tells you or your your attorney and it gets passed on to you that they've committed a prior crime, maybe a murder, Um, not the current crime, not the current uh, thing that's being investigated, but a prior murder and how that former police officer wants to handle that. Have you run into that? I have. You know, a few years ago, I was hired to uh, interview somebody that was involved in a homicide. Uh, And at the time, the police did not uh, have enough to arrest him or they were looking to arrest him and and questioning him in regards to it. And um, I located the individual. I interviewed him along with some outside witnesses and said, hey, this is more of a self-defense case based on my experience and uh, of it. I I said, just turn yourself in and let it go from there. Well, he didn't want to do that. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you, you take a look at it, and it's like, I don't have a problem uh, with it. I, I mean, we have attorney-client privilege as investigators, especially when we're working for somebody. And if the attorney feels that should be turned over, then he or she should advise me 
what they mm-hmm. want me to do. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's easier said than done. In this case here, this event, uh, person was eventually picked up, and uh, upon being questioned, they released him. So, you know, I guess it, it depends. Uh, I personally will follow the lead of the attorney who hires me. Well, the attorney-client privilege, just to define it, uh, is sacrosanct, actually, and it doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to the attorney. It belongs to the client, and only with the client's permission can any information be disclosed that that particular client tells you uh, or or the attorney. So, um, I mean, attorneys have lost their bar license because they've disclosed uh, information that's been given to them by their clients. So it's really serious, uh, even right. though you hear all kinds of horrible things. Interesting. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, this case that you were involved in, Tom, uh, is just really fascinating. So let's let's start talking about that. Um, kind of tell us how you got into the case and, and uh, what the details were. And I, I'm not going to give folks uh, a, a highlight other than it's DNA that is a really interesting process in this particular case. Right. And what happened was, uh, here's a set of circumstances. Back in uh, July of 2015, a 15-year-old was walking home for some friend's house at uh, approximately 1035 at night. As he's walking home along a very busy street in uh that runs through Milwaukee County, a suspect approached him at gunpoint, forced the victim behind some bushes, just feet away from, like I say, this highly traveled road, and had the suspect perform a sexual act on the victim. And during the assault, um, some DNA was left on his underpants, on the other underpants. Mm-hmm. After it occurred, the suspect handed the victim $220 bills and left the scene on foot. Now, the, the, victim was, the victim was only 15 years old, correct? That, that is correct. Okay. And what happened was, uh, during the police investigation, they were unable to come up with a suspect. There was no hit on the DNA uh, web, the database sites, and uh, it was just a cold case. Approximately one or two months later, um, the victim, by looking at his Facebook account, gets a friend's request from an individual uh, who was uh, the suspect in the sexual assault. Um, he tells his mother this, who in turn uh, reports it to the police. Now, why now, did the he individual think, that, what, Tom, why did he think it, it was the suspect? Well, because he saw the suspect. The uh, profile picture of the individual matched that of the suspect, right down to the dreads and everything else in his hair. And uh, this individual... That, uh, was eventually charged um, was a uh, owned a couple group homes that there were problems at allegations of his employees not him uh, doing sexual assaults um, so the Brown Deer Police Department went out and uh, interviewed him and took a DNA sample with his consent okay now about a month later that DNA sample came back that that in fact was his DNA at which point he was arrested and charged with second-degree sexual assault of a child. Why armed? Um, In February of 2016, 
is that an attorney had contacted me asking me to take a look at this case with her and to assist her uh, into putting together a viable uh, defense for him. Well, I went out to the victim's now, house. Okay, before you get into that, Tom, uh, he, uh, the, the suspect was also involved in all kinds of uh, situations with children, right? Like, that, like that uh, is, Yes. Well, something about... Uh, he, he was a, a teacher or a substitute teacher for the Milwaukee Public School Systems. Uh, he was uh, well-known in those rings, basically. Didn't he also, he and his wife also foster uh, teenagers as well? Yes. Teenagers yes. that were they troubled? did foster... They fostered several children uh, and adopted a couple of those children uh, that were that came from troubled homes. Yes. And one of those children had made an allegation in the past, or more than one allegation, perhaps that turned out to right. be false. One of those, one of his uh, uh, adopted children did. It was investigated. Uh, it was uh, deemed to be uh, unsubstantiated, uh, which basically either means it was a false complaint or there was not enough evidence there to go any farther with it. Um, so, so so what happens when you when a police uh, police investigator sees all this smoke surrounding one suspect, it it causes alarm, correct? Correct, it does. It, it actually, yes. And one of the other things that one of this uh, individual's group homes, about a month or two prior to this incident occurring, one of the kids that was in the foster home uh, that had mental health problems uh, hung himself in the backyard from oh, a tree. Wow. So there you got, you know, I mean, the guy's on the radar. During the course of the investigation, all the allegations that came into the state of Wisconsin for Child Protective Services, I reviewed, and each one of them was investigated by the state and then deemed to be uh, unsubstantiated. So, you know, it's like, mm. where are you going? How many, you know, uh, do you know how many, do you know how many allegations there actually were, approximately? I want to say approximately six. Uh, there could have been more, but uh, six is the number that I recall. Okay. All right. Well, one is too so many, it, right? <laughs> so. I mean, the guy was definitely out there, and what happens is, so I go to his house, with the attorney, and I sit down, and he tells me how this could have happened. And he has a list of alibi witnesses, um, probably at least uh, 10 of them that I interviewed that night, um, in regards to his whereabouts. Now, when I sit down with him, and he's telling me this story here, his one son, or adopted son, uh, had wanted money from him, uh, approximately $10,000, to help mm-hmm. out with a, a newborn baby that he had. Uh, the client refused, at which point uh, the adopted son said, well, I'm going to get you for this. And this was the same adopted son that had made the allegations uh, prior of uh, sexual assault or some unfounded allegations previously prior to this incident occurring. So it's like, well, let me tell you, I've been doing this a long time. How does your DNA get on this guy's undershorts if you're not involved? Right. And he comes up with a very elaborate story. And basically what he says is that um, 
as a young child, he had been locked in a closet. So he and his wife do not lock their doors to their residence. And that um, he believes that his, I'll just say son instead of adopted son, but came by and had recovered a his semen from a used condom and had planted it with the consent of this 15-year-old to make it look like there was a sexual assault that had occurred. And you must and have thought, like, Tom, no way, this is like... Yeah, I told him that. Of, I says, out of a movie. If that's, if that's your story, I says, I, have, I don't believe it. I will investigate it. I will go out and interview your alibi witnesses and do everything I can, but I'm not buying it. And you told him, and did you says, tell him right then that you weren't buying the story? Yep. And he, he, he says, I understand that, but he still wanted me to work the case. And it's like, okay. fine. So I went out, interviewed uh, these uh, 10 alibi witnesses. And basically what it was, it was a motorcycle club and that these guys were out riding that day. Well, one of the individuals had told me that several months prior to this incident occurring, uh, the client's son had approached him and was going to pay him $10,000 to help set up the client on a false sexual assault allegation. And Tom, that, before you, Tom, before you finish yes. that, let's, uh, let's hold the audience uh, and take a quick break so we can, you know, sell our commercials here and come right back. I'd like to okay. hear this in depth. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com.
listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Our guest today is Tom Fisher, a licensed investigator from Wisconsin, who's telling us about this fascinating DNA case. And Dom, you were just just about to say you went and interviewed one of these witnesses who was with a motorcycle club that your client was also uh, a part of. So go ahead and tell us about that. But what happened is when I'm doing interviewing these individuals, one of them said uh, the stepson, the adopted son, had uh, offered him uh, $10,000 to help set up the client months earlier for another fake sexual assault. And, mm-hmm. uh, he says he turned it down and didn't think much of it until he saw in the news. Well, after this incident occurred that, uh, the client had been charged with the, uh, attempted sexual assault or the sexual assault of this 15 year old victim. During the interviews, of the various members of this motorcycle club, I could determine that from early morning Saturday to 10.14 p.m. that night, Sunday night, I should say, not Saturday, but Sunday, this this occurred uh, Sunday night, um, Mm -hmm. I, I could account for his time based on the various interviews. Another individual I interviewed said, well then, he and the client went to a restaurant to pick up a pizza and then they went home to eat that pizza. Now we got to recall that this uh, incident allegedly occurred at 10:35 PM at night on Sunday night. Well, okay. I went to the restaurant and in fact, I got a receipt showing that uh, a pizza was purchased by these two people or at least one of these two people, the uh, person that waited on them could not remember if it was one or two people that came to pick up the pizza. And it showed okay. on that receipt that the pizza was bought at ten sixteen PM that night. Was it so, paid for by a credit card? It, yes, it was. Okay. Now what happened was I have a picture of this individual, the client eating that pizza from a cell phone photo at 11.17 p.m. that night. Now, this is taken off uh, another witness's cell phone at his house. So that leaves me a time frame, you know, of approximately 40 minutes, a little under that time frame right there, that this incident occurred. It occurred. Well, the distance between the restaurant and the address of the assault was 18.4 miles. And, And this... Time frame was developed by interviewing witnesses and obtaining uh, telephone calls made uh, with the one witness that the client had been with and was later at his house that night. Theoretically, it would not have given enough time for that assault to occur and the client to get back to his residence. So that kind of interests me a lot more, saying you know, maybe this really did not happen. And is being, uh, the client is being set up by his son. Mm-hmm. Well, and a question, what, Tom, the uh, guy, the motorcycle guy that told you that uh, the son had tried to pay him to help previously, did you believe him when he said that? Uh, you know, 
I, I took it down. Um, that was one of the uh, points I was going to take a look at uh, throughout the investigation uh, or later in the investigation. And um, based on what occurred in the future, I never did get back to that. Um, I did a extensive search on this individual. And at the time he was working at a, as a bank, at a bank, as a bank teller. But mm-hmm. after, and it's one of those ones you put on the back burner to get to. It's important, right. but based on the information I had, it wasn't that important at the time. I later okay. found that he, at one time, worked for the client's group home as a counselor. So it's like, all right, here, you know, could this be mm. a, a setup or, you know, could this individual be lying to me? What's going on here? Um, mm-hmm. So, like I say, I, at that point, I didn't take a look at it, uh, with, you know, the first couple of weeks there. So what happened is now I have doubts about the client actually being responsible for this offense. Next thing I did is, based on the police reports and the interview that the victim had given to the officers, I did uh, two map searches on the route that he took home. Then I drove those routes, and the times were about the same. And basically... Based on the route that he had given the officers, um, and I ran it a, a three different routes, it, it was like it boiled down to about 5.7 miles that the victim had walked, depending on what map I used, either Google or MapQuest, and my mm-hmm. traveling the route on foot. It would go anywhere from an hour and 52 minutes to two hours and 16 minutes. It would have taken from him from the house he left, the victim's friend's house, to the point where the assault occurred at. And okay. that would have would not have given enough time for that assault to occur and the client to get back to his residence. Okay. So it, it, here again, there was just some doubt there. I, it, you know, based, based on what the victim had said. Is, is there a fact that the, could it be that the victim was incorrect in his time frame of the assault mm-hmm. or the time that he walked? He could have been. But, you know, the victim, I, I here again attempted to interview him with the consent of his mother, and I was denied that, understandably so. So I couldn't verify or go over his time frame uh, during my investigation. Okay. Um also, my time frame based, it would have put the investigation, it would have put the assault occurring at 11 p.m. and not 10.35 p.m. based on what I knew. Well, once this okay. story broke in the news with the arrest of the client, um, and all of a sudden he received, uh, the client received on his cell phone a text message uh, asking for $10,000 in an extortion conspiracy. And this was back in uh, October 2015. Now, the demand was for $10,000, and the person that sent it was going to threaten to wage more false allegations of rape against the client if that money didn't come in. So I took all those phone numbers and ran them through, and they were all on what we call the burner phones. Mm -hmm. And... uh, I went out and located everybody that had historically had that phone and interviewed them and ruled them out as possibly being involved in the extortion attempt or having any contact 
with the client or anybody that the client would know uh, based on my investigation at that point. Now, what happened was prior to the attorney that hired me, there was another attorney and private investigator working on this case. That attorney had contacted the district attorney that issued the charges saying, hey, my client's now being extorted, asked the Brown Deer Police Department to take a look into it, and the Brown Deer Police Department uh, advised the district attorney that there would be a conflict of interest, so they weren't going to look into that. So it's like, wow. You know, here again it goes back. If you're charging somebody, we have an obligation to make sure that they actually committed the offense. And I found that interesting, interesting that the police department did not want to go back out and reconduct their, any further investigation once the charge was issued. Mm-hmm. Not unusual, well, however. Not unusual. Yeah, I, unfortunately it is not. And, and that's, that's the problem I'm finding now is working as a defense investigator. Um, right. You know, they, they, they nail around on one person and they gather the evidence, they get a charge issued, but they don't want to look at other things that possibly right. could be involved or possibly pointing to another suspect. Um, yep. And, and like I said, I, uh, I have one investigator that, I mean, she's fantastic. She worked uh, sensitive crime. She was the uh, investigator that ran the uh, forensic unit for the city of Milwaukee police department. And she's gone out there on sexual assault cases. And out of several of them, she got six not guilties in trial and one that was knocked down to a disorderly conduct because okay. interviews weren't followed up on. And that is a responsibility of law enforcement to do that. True. And they don't. So going back to the story here, um, now I was also getting various Facebook hits on the client's account uh, various emails that were being sent uh, to the client indicating uh, that he, the son, was looking for other individuals to help him set up the client and other sexual assaults. Now, we copied those emails. We maintained them. Uh, I went out and another investigator went out and interviewed some of these individuals and we must have interviewed 12 to 15 different people that confirm the client's story that the son had contacted him in an attempt to extort money from his father and set him up as being involved in these sexual assaults of children. Okay. As this is all going on here, um, we're thinking, well, I don't know, where can we go with this, you know? We know that the uh, the victim and uh, the son had a Facebook account and they were friends on Facebook. They would close those accounts out and open them up under uh, different names, usernames with Facebook. So, that's the way it was. Well, to make the story more interesting is my main witness that ordered the pizza with uh, the client, he calls me in March of 2016. And I was out with the attorney attempting to locate additional witnesses at that point when he called me. The individual that called me indicated that a black female who was a transvestite 
uh, was mm-hmm. at a park in that area. He saw her on his way home from work. That was a plot so, thickens. It, pardon? Yeah, it does. It the does. It, it, it gets, so, <laughs> so it gets real interesting. So as I pull up, I see the woman standing by the basketball courts. I identify myself to her, and she identifies herself as Toya. And she says, I know what you're here for. You're here for that Danza arrest. And it's like, yes, yes, we are. So we take her to an area that we can interview her at. Uh, and the story we get from her is she knew that people were looking for her regarding the help that she had given the son to set the guy up that was in the news for sexual assault of a young boy. Okay. Then Toya goes on to tell me that the son had promised her $3,000 to obtain Daniel's semen so she could use it to, so he could use it to frame his foster father and extort money from him. Well, what happened was Toya, the son and a third individual go over to the client's house on two different occasions with the intent to recover a used condom or some other DNA that would link the client to the sexual assault that they were setting up. The first time they were there, they weren't sure if anybody was home or not, so they did not go in. The second time was on a Sunday morning, and the they knew that uh, the, the son knew that his parents would be at church during this time frame. So they went in the house, recovered a used condom, and eventually used that semen from there to put on the 15-year-old's uh, underpants. And then, and that was on the same day that uh, the offense occurred, allegedly. Toya then goes on to say that she had contacted the Brown Deer Police Department in October of 2015 to tell the truth, but they didn't believe her, and nobody ever called her back to talk to her in regards to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I attempted that night to uh, contact the police department saying, hey, I got this witness that you guys should interview. Um, Their detectives were tied up on another investigation. And to this day, I'm still waiting a call back from them. So Really? Yeah, I I (laughs) never did get a call back. (laughs) (laughs) So based on the evidence, the interviews of uh, 15 witnesses or more during the investigation, uh, the attorney and I sat down with our client and said, hey, I don't have subpoena power as an investigator. We need more help and things have to be done in order to uh, prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. So, Tom, let me ask you about that because I, I, I read that and I, how, why doesn't the attorney have subpoena power? Well, I, the attorney told me she didn't. It's like, well, yeah, it's a criminal case. You do. I, 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 I can't answer that. I, I don't think the attorney huh. knew what the procedure was uh, to get it um, or just didn't want to do it. I, I, I have no idea. But I knew I couldn't go any farther in the phone records and um, right. with the Facebook accounts. And I have typed out subpoenas uh, while I was in law enforcement and you know through the various organizations I belong to know how to type those subpoenas out and where to send them to. So I could have done it. 
Um, right. So, I, and so, out of curiosity, why were there two attorneys and two investigators involved? Who did, who was the well, other attorney working for? The same client? The other, no, no. Initially, what happened was he hired one attorney who hired an investigator. Then he got rid of that attorney and investigator, hired the attorney that hired me. So the two of us were doing it. But there had been some work done when uh, it, prior to the changing attorneys. Okay. So. And and the attorney you were working for was was that attorney a criminal defense attorney? Yes, um, very highly regarded. I, I like I say, uh, she has she worked in the U.S. Uh, uh, attorney's office. Uh, she had uh, been in private practice for a few years. Um, but like I say, I huh. don't very know why that wasn't done. Okay. So we also I also explained to the client that, you know, if we brought this back to the district attorney's investigators, who are all former Milwaukee detectives for the most part, and they look into this, and it's not true, you could be charged with additional crimes. So I said, you got to weigh what your options are here. And the client was insistent that we take this to law enforcement, the district attorney's investigators, which is law enforcement in the state of Wisconsin, and have them take a look at all the different evidence and uh, take it from there. So with the client, the DA that charged the case, their investigators, uh, the client's attorney and myself, we sat down, presented the evidence that we had, and the district attorney uh, investigators took the case over. They went out and interviewed several of the witnesses that I had interviewed, and uh, they changed the stories. Basically, the guy that was with him up until 1014 and went to got the pizza with him on that night and then went to his house turned out to be his lover. Okay. Which is okay. So he had said he did lie. The transvestite that he had found in the park that uh, we interviewed and he came up with this story turned out to be the lover's sister or brother. <laughs> so it's like, what? Well, needless to say, uh, their investigators interviewed these two individuals who said they, along with the client, had concocted this whole story, had requested other people get involved in it, which is why initially I was getting all these statements supporting what the client was telling me Mm -hmm. and uh, had uh, created false Facebook accounts, burnout phones that they had gotten that they used, uh, sent text messages back and forth, to make it look like it was the son that was doing this, demanding money and all this other stuff here. Well, based on those statements and uh, the evidence that was uh, uh, recovered during the investigator's uh, investigation, um, the client was charged with uh, conspiracy to commit perjury and bail jumping in regards to his original second-degree sexual assault of child offense. So, with all that being said here, uh, eventually the client took a plea and he was sentenced to 18 years in the Wisconsin State Prison System, uh, 18 years confinement time. As of today, that case is still under appeal uh, wow. with a course of a different attorney. So, it'll be interesting to see what happens down the line. So, let's... But, let's <laughs> okay, this is a little complicated. So, let's just recap. Can you... <laughs> can sure. You, no, I... I, I t- Go ahead, ask away. <laughs> so, all right. So, to start out with, um, 
your client is charged with sexually assaulting a 15-year-old because the 15-year-old saw the his picture on Facebook. Right, then, he had sent this guy a picture second, on Facebook. All right, and secondly, and there, and there's and your client's DNA is on his underwear. Yes. Okay, then secondly, three people conspired together to get a used condom out of your client's house while the client's at church. Correct. Okay. Then, <laughs> then uh, there's fake extortion attempts along the way. Yes. There's questionable, yes. there's this questionable uh, foster child who's now an adult uh, who's he's had issues with before that becomes a questionable suspect and then Correct. it turns out that your client has set this all up himself Correct. With the assistance of these two individuals, the, bro the two brothers, uh, Toya and the other individual, yes. Um, and in regards to the 10 to 15 other witnesses that we interviewed during the course of this investigation, he also uh, had these people basically make up a story and lie for him. Um, now, these people were never brought into uh, the DA investigators portion of their they part in, in all this. All. Right. Right. Yeah. But here again, going back, everything he had talked to numerous people, conspired with numerous people, uh, in order to cover his tracks. Such so. is so fascinating. Well, it just, it just got, does go to show that, uh, DNA can be planted. It's it interesting does, yes. because that is typically never even taken as a consideration. Ever. And, you know, that is correct. I mean, uh, people think, yeah, you got DNA. That's it. There's, I mean, he's guilty or she's guilty. You know, it's like, well, is the DNA contaminated? How is the specimen recovered? How is it kept? Uh, how did it get there? So it's all stuff that uh, should be looked at by the investigators. And um, in some cases, it's not. So... I would say in probably 99% of the cases it isn't. So so when you came up, came across this final uh, conclusion, what was your reaction, Tom? Well, I, like I say, I, I mean, I realized that during the course of this investigation, I put blinders on. Um, initially, I didn't believe the client. I told mm -hmm. him so. I went out and interviewed uh Followed up with people. I have a box, a, a banker's box filled with interviews alone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you recover, uh, I want to say physical evidence, such as screenshots of Facebook, screenshots of text messages, all this other stuff here. It's like, okay, this could have happened this way. But here again, you know, I, my best advice to investigators would be, hey, don't put the blinders on, take a look at it and, and either verify the information that is given to you by your client or, you know, investigate further. And if, you, if the client's not telling you the truth, you have that obligation to say to the attorney, hey, this isn't true. This is what uh, happened. Well, so, it, you know, you know, what's interesting is that uh, you evidently identified some deception in what your client was telling you initially. It's just the, 
interpretation of the deception was askew. Yes. Yes. And that, that, was, and that, that was a problem. And it's, you know, I have interviewed thousands of people over 40 years of doing this. It's going to be 40 years at the end of this year as either mm-hmm. in law enforcement or as in a private investigator. And it's like, you just, I mean, there were items there that uh, supported what the client was telling me. Right. Um, but, you know, here again, you have to review your work. You have to review the uh, documentation you dig up on people. And I think in this case here, one of the biggest mistakes that I made was not tying the two brothers in, the transvestite and the other one, the main witness. Um, I, one of the, the investigators told me there was two addresses or no, one address for the two of them that came up the same. And it's like, I went back and looked at that. And it's like, sure enough, I missed that in all the paperwork that I had. Mm. So yeah. we have to review, which if I would have saw that right away, it would have raised a red flag and I would have addressed it during my investigation. But so, I didn't see it. So, uh, and that was, like I say, brought to my attention. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we all make mistakes and, you know, when you have volumes of data like what you're talking about, it, it's easy. It's you know you're looking for one thing and and you're you may miss another it, very possibly. So what? Right. So what was the turning point on identifying the your client as being behind all of this? Well, the turning point was basically when the uh, DA investigators went back in there um, and uh, in separate interviews. Uh, they had them, interviewed them separately. I basically said, hey, you're going to be charged criminally with this if you don't tell us the truth. So I think what happened there is these guys were facing possible jail time, mm-hmm. and they finally just broke and said, well, this is actually what occurred. Interesting and, and- point, though, is the two of them tried to afterwards call me and the attorney, and we met with these two brothers, and they both said, and they were interviewed separately again, indicated that they were threatened by the district attorney's office and they lied to the DA, but they want to tell us the truth. And it's like, guys, your credibility are shot. We met with them, <laughs> went over, you know, what right. could be the truth. And it's like, well, it's all murky now. What is the truth? You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but it, it, like I say, it, it turned out that the, uh, uh, one brother, not the transvestite, but the other one and the client, uh, had lived together, uh, or, and uh, even though the client was married, um, and this is their words, were basically lovers. Uh-huh. So, and, and that's why and what, the one tried to cover up for the other. Okay, and what was it that made law enforcement go back and redo this after they had refused to look at anything else? Well, the department that had the initial investigation and uh, had arrested the client did not go back and do any investigative work in regards to it. What happened was in Milwaukee County, the district attorney has uh, several uh, investigators that do work, various criminal work and stuff like that for the district Mm -hmm. attorney's office. And Mm -hmm. they went back out at our request to take a look at what we had recovered, what we had learned through the course of my investigation and with the client's assistance, uh, they, they demanded that uh, we give the DA investigators what we had so they could go out there and uh, 
work the case in order to get these charges dropped. Fascinating. Just fascinating. So back to what your advice for private investigators when they have, I mean, this is a, this is a complicated case. And, uh, and good for you guys for getting to the bottom of it. I mean, well, like I obviously say, they, with law enforcement help or with DA's office help, but still, um, getting to the bottom of it. And all we do as investigators is report what people tell us, you know? Right, right. I, I think one of the important things is, and what I do is, um, majority of the time I can sit down with the client with the attorney present when, he, when I first get hired on a case. And you know, one of the things I like to take a look at is, as that client's telling uh, me their story, I like to look at the body language of the client and, in, you know, of course, going to make that determination if it's fact or fiction, a fiction what you're being told or if they're holding back information. And, and that happens, you know. Uh, clients aren't always going to be truthful with you or they're not going to tell you the whole story. So, Probably more uh, often than not that you don't get the whole story, right? Exactly. And it's up to that investigator to go out there and, and find out what the truth is. You know, you have the client's version, you have the police version, and I figure somewhere in between is the truth. Mm-hmm. So what I enjoy doing is like putting a puzzle together. I mean, I'm just gathering the pieces, putting them together here and throughout my investigation. And... I find it fascinating, especially being coming from one end of, you know, convicting people or arresting people and having them charged to investigating the charges against people. Um, Very interesting. You know, it's too bad, actually, that um, law enforcement agencies don't bring back retired officers that have become private investigators that do criminal defense work and have them give trainings. You know, uh, there there'd be so much benefit to that. I would think. I agree. There would be. Um, like I say, though, I mean, in law enforcement, you have a tendency to look down at people that are private investigators, and <laughs> I did. I, I know I did. And and when I fell into this profession, it's like there are people that I've learned so much from that have been doing this for a long time that were never in law enforcement. And, and uh, things that I, in the past uh, I would take for granted during an investigation, it's like, no, no, I, I no longer take for granted. you got to dig deeper. Um, and that's the thing. I, it's, it's, I find it very fascinating. Well, of course, I mean, we do, in the private sector, we do have a bit of an advantage that we can work. Um, we're, we're focused on a client in one case. I mean, even if we have multiple cases, we're focused on that case one at a time where, you know, the various law enforcement agencies are bombarded with all kinds of cases that they have pressure on them to get resolved and and get off their desk. Yes. So, and I I think we, we often forget that law enforcement's job is really to get enough probable cause for arrest and turn it over to a district attorney to file charges. Well, that's true, but you also have to remember, and and, and one of the things that was always drilled in our head, once that case, you investigate a a crime, you arrest somebody for that crime, you get somebody charged for that crime, the case is not over until it goes to the jury and the jury comes up with a a decision on that individual fate. 
you have a responsibility if new evidence comes in or, or additional witnesses or whatever, you have a responsibility in law enforcement to go out and talk to those people and, and determine what actually occurred. Um, and in some cases, that's not done. Well, so, and it, you know, and it's not done because it's essentially taken out of law enforcement's hands and turned over to the DA's office. So unless the district attorney, the prosecutor, uh, uh, initiates something like that with his inspectors or his own staff, nothing's going to happen. Um, because, you know, my experience has been that once the DA's office accepts a case for charges, uh, they're, they're very resistant on doing anything unless you, unless you can bring to them on a platter uh, something that exonerates your client. Well, exactly. And, and that's it. And I understand it. You know, uh, it's here in Milwaukee County, um, they're just bombarded with people being charged every day with criminal offenses, and they have such a heavy workload. Um, I always found it amazing that they could handle the amount of cases they handle when you're sitting in there in court. Uh, exactly. And here, that's why you have the plea bargains. Or, you know, It's offered to the defendant just to get that case off the table. Well, and as I said to one homicide detective once who asked me how in the world I do this, <laughs> this criminal defense work, I said, well, you know what? Some people are actually innocent. And he said, not people that commit homicides. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, and, and here you go again. I, I, a lot of the cases that I'm working, I got right now uh, two actually active homicide cases that I'm working. And it's like... <laughs> Yeah, if you just read the reports, it looks like your guy's person is guiltier than anything here, but there's more to it. And uh, that's the part that we, have, as investigators, have to go out and find out what actually occurred. And I'm looking forward to these two going to trial. It's going to oh, be interesting. That's great, Tom. This, is, this <laughs> has been such a great case. Thank you so much for sharing it. We're out of time. Uh, which is a perfect ending uh, to this great conversation we had about this case. For the rest of you well, folks, you tune in again as we declassify more real t- stories from real investigators like Tom Fisher every Thursday morning. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Tom. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 